Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities, the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Hello and welcome to The Reading Life, your weekly look at the Louisiana literary scene. I'm Susan Larson. This week we'll be talking with John Lawrence, Museum Programs Director and Curator Emeritus of the Historic New Orleans Collection. His beautiful new book is Louisiana Lens, photographs from the Historic New Orleans Collection. John Lawrence has always seemed like one of the happiest men I know. He spent his professional life, all 46 years of it, working at a dream job at the historic New Orleans collection. Well, many dream jobs, actually, and he retired as director of museum programs in 2020. He's written and lectured on virtually every aspect of contemporary and historic photography, and over his career, he has cared for more than half a million items. We see the fruit of that knowledge and experience in a beautiful new book, Louisiana Lens, Photographs from the Historic New Orleans Collection. John Lawrence, welcome to The Reading Life. Thank you so much, Susan. It's great to be here. And even though it's a photography book, you're really teaching us how to read photographs, the language of photographs, what they have to tell us over time. Talk about that. Well, the you know, the photograph, uh, like almost anything visual, has... Uh, has things that define it beyond its nominal content. And so, uh, yes, this can be a picture of a tree or a building or a person. But I think when um, you begin to look harder or to put together the things around the edges of that picture just outside Mm -hmm. of the frame and and whether those edges include other events, other people, uh, a different time, then it gives a little more uh, richness and depth to what can be a beautiful object or simply a prosaic one. And um, that's what I've tried to do in Louisiana Lens. And it's a funny thing because photography wasn't a priority for the collection at the very beginning. It was not a priority for the um, collection's founders, Kemper and right. Leela Williams. There were you talk about two things that they had. <laughs> well, they, they, those were two things that sort of represented a bookend. Period. There were right. uh, there were more than literally two, but um, the um, uh, the William Odeorn uh, photographs of New Orleans uh, from the 1920s, which were Uh, very much of a style of pictorial photography uh, at that time, these these sort of uh, soft focus, um, uh, sort of nicely composed uh, views of the French Quarter, and and then a much more hard-edged and modernist portfolio of work by Clarence Lachlan. And Mm -hmm. those were not the only photographic items, but they sort of represented bookends, if you will, of what the photographic holdings of the institution were at that moment. And you take us back to that time when people did buy, not albums, but little collections of photographs. I remember when I first came to New Orleans from the French market, I got one of those accordion-style postcard things with tons of images, you know? But there were more elaborate sorts of things that people collected that you 
have at the collection. Yes, the range of photographs in the book range from uh, snapshots to um, very highly produced works of photographic art. Um, uh, the Odeorn pictures, which are referenced in the um, uh, in the introduction, are uh, actual photographic prints. They were put in a little kind of paper portfolio mm-hmm. that and were sold as as souvenirs. But the um, idea of photographs in a history museum, I think, is one that can be much larger than a more narrow context of photographs, say, in a scientific library or even photographs in an art museum, which are judged on other merits than a history museum might judge photographs for inclusion. Mm -hmm. And so, as I say in the introduction, one question I hope uh, that this collection between covers will answer for uh, any reader is, why is this photograph in a history museum? And that's the big question, I guess, if there is one. And you point out that the best photograph of an historic event isn't necessarily by a professional photographer. There are moments that being in the right place in the right time uh, with a camera can, yeah. uh, can, uh, can produce memorable photographs. I think all of us uh, who wield a camera of different uh, types are able to capture lightning in a bottle mm-hmm. at least once in our lifetimes. I, I think what separates people who do that from a cohort of uh, professional or engaged photographers is they're catching lightning every day, every week, every month for over a career. And so, right. uh, but for uh, in in terms of the um, of what a collection in a history museum is, um, the maker is not always the most important thing. It's so interesting to see that, you know. One of the things you do in this book that's so interesting is organize it by technique and yes. trends, and you come forward from 1834. But still, even with that organizing principle, the whole idea of chronology and different kinds of ways of making photographs, this was a lot of stuff to tackle. What was your M.O.? I mean, how did you go about it? Or did you always have a mental list of these are the great photographs? Well, I did not have a list per se at the very beginning. I um, tried to refamiliarize myself with uh, less lesser known to me groups of photographs um, that were in, say, manuscript collections or had been recently acquired and not thoroughly cataloged. But I had some of that in mind. Overall, regardless of the final form that the book was to take, I wanted it to address as many important, I'm putting air quotes around that, issues uh, in um, uh, historical time. Uh, I wanted it to uh, address in some uh, in some significant way, the technology and technological development of photographic history as represented in uh, HNOC's holdings, and also to uh, to try to rope in some of the more consistent practitioners of, uh, of right. photography in their eras and across this period of time, which uh, earliest picture is 1843. The latest one is 2018. So, yeah. um, so uh, that was a, the kind of, if there was a exoskeleton of the book for a framework that uh, those issues sort of were, uh, were it. And within and that, there was still a tremendous amount of leeway. 
And it's so delightful. I mean, like you turn a page and there's one of those old stereoscope yes. photographs, you know, and you're like, oh, I remember those. Yes. <laughs> I, mean. um, I, I think it's undeniable and, and I, I hope uh, fairly universal that uh, there is uh, an element of nostalgia or familiarity to yeah. people as they go through the book, whether it's for the subject, for the type of photograph, for something that touched their own life in a similar fashion. And so hopefully there's something for everybody. <laughs> I think there really is. So let's talk a little bit about some of the photographs. This is where we're at a disadvantage on radio, of course, okay. but I'll defer to you. The cover photograph, the Georges Durot photograph, yes. is so dreamy. It's, it's such a New Orleans image. Talk yes. Talk about that. And there were numerous, as you might imagine, numerous discussions of cover images with uh, the designer of the book, uh, Allison Cody, and um, uh, the, the principal editor, Kathy Mizell Nelson, and me and others to uh, to kind of what would best suggest this, uh, what would you know best suggest this. Uh, Louisiana Lens uh, compilation. And the Duro picture has always been a favorite of mine because it's kind of uncharacteristic of yeah, what people think about when they think about a George Duro photograph. It is, in some nominal sense, a self-portrait because mm -hmm. the mirror in the picture captures like a corner of his uh, face. And it's, it's just such an optical <laughs> photograph yeah. if that's not redundant. But it just seems for reasons I can't necessarily pin down to be a good choice for the entirety of what the book was trying to do. Well, the mirror is in the lower right-hand corner, and you're looking at a room, an empty yes. room. Yes, it's in George's uh, studio, studio. And the photograph, either by design or accident, has what might be considered a defect. There's a some light striking of the negative uh, that gives an orange cast because it is a color photograph. Mm -hmm. And and there's this, as you said, a dreamy quality, but it's also, for me, it also represents a little bit of the magic that is associated with photography. I mean, I, I know we all know what makes a photograph. But right. uh, I, I just remember the first time ever seeing a picture come up in the developer when I was in high school working on the yearbook. It's like, gosh, this is just this is just magic. <laughs> That's you know? why we all love Polaroids it's, too. Uh, you know? <laughs> and 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 so I, I think that cover image uh, suggests a little bit of that. The mirror. The mirror is so wonderful. And then the end papers, which are really perfect. Yes. The first end papers are of a photographic studio's Right. That's C. Bennett Moore, uh, New Orleans-based uh, portrait, mostly portrait practice. And the other clues in that picture, I don't know because the end paper is a detail. I don't know if they show up as well. It appears that this was his display at a professional photography conference held in New Orleans uh, in the late 1920s. And um, it's, it's just his smorgasbord of portraiture, including a fairly well-known portrait of Huey Long uh, that Moore, Moore is responsible for having done. And again, you know, it's kind of the same idea, but very different formally of uh, if people are familiar with Walker Evans's photograph, I believe in Savannah, Georgia, of a photographer's mm -hmm. studio that is just, it has all these little wallet-sized pictures just 
just kind of pasted in the window. I think it underscores the idea that not only is photography ubiquitous, but it, it can be very individual and as much as each of these is a portrait, but it's also almost omnipresent as well. It was also then an occasion. You would go yes. to the photographer to get your photograph made. And, you know, you, you see those faces on that display, and they're like something you'd look at on the Internet now, you know, a whole wall of faces. Right. It's changed so much. Right. But you have many of C. Bennett Moore's we do photographs, have. and you write a lot about the importance of archives like that in building the historic New Orleans collections collection. I that is true. Early on, and I think it was because in 1979 we uh, acquired uh, a large portion uh, of the Charles Frank collection. It was a commercial studio in New Orleans, and uh, we had acquired the, the portion from its inception in the early 20th century up through 1955. The practice wanted to maintain those later photographs going mm -hmm. forward. That second part ultimately came to us as well. But when a practice uh, in one location can, uh, I think it can tell you so much over a period of time. It tells you about yeah. the clientele. It tells you about trends. It may tell you about important events if its book of business, as it were, uh, includes such things. But I, I think the... You know, the single beautiful photographs can touch us in one way, but yeah. being able to study a whole swath of history through a single business, sometimes even a single person, is useful in understanding history. It's not a complete explanation, but I think it offers a lot, a lot. And then the closing end papers are photographed by Matt Anderson. Yes. That's another Sea of faces. Yes, New it was uh, an interesting story. I, I spoke to um, to Matt about that. It was the kind of end of a march to end the war in Vietnam, and the, uh, a whole many, many hundreds, if not thousands, of people were gathered uh, on the lawn near the city hall building to hear um, hear talks, to bear witness to what they wanted people to see they stood for. And it's amazing because here, here is the, uh, you know, the anonymous crowd, and every one of those people is easily identifiable right? if, <laughs> if, if you know who you are looking at. And mm -hmm. I don't claim to, but um, I know Matt said, oh, yeah, that was so-and-so, and that was so-and-so, <laughs> and that was so. And so uh, the idea that this faceless crowd doesn't really hold in this, in this picture. It's, uh, Just as many people would say, I know Matt. He's the one on the bicycle. <laughs> Because right. people see him biking yeah. around town taking photographs. Yeah. If you're just joining us, my guest is John Lawrence, whose beautiful new book is Louisiana Lens, Photographs from the Historic New Orleans Collection. One of the sections I particularly love is the section called From Professionals to Amateurs. Yes. Because that's the part where pho photography becomes democratized in a way, you know? Yes. And you had, I was so taken by the ones by Mother Marie St. Croix. Right. Those, yeah. were, those were strangely moving to me photographs. She did wonderful work. And um, uh, Mother St. Croix was uh, an Ursuline uh, who um, uh, was charged presumably from the albums she created, with uh, documenting the day-to-day -day activities of uh, not so much the convent, but the school. Mm -hmm. And um, this is when the uh, her pictures were made in an era 
where the convent and the school were located on what is now the site of the Industrial Canal. Right. And uh, although she did move with the um, with the community to their uh, new location on State Street, um, it, the work that she did in the Dauphine Street location, I think, is, uh, is, is just incredible for its structural rigor of the pictures mm-hmm. as well as just an eye for showing what went on there in yeah. a way where she's using an 8 by 10 stand camera uh, where probably several seconds of exposure w- were required. And mm-hmm. I often tell people I, I think using a, a view camera like that is is almost akin to conceptual photography. You have uh-huh. to make the picture before you expose it. All right. uh, you've got to compose it and make sure everything is in place. And then uh, it's after that, it's just execution. This is not a perceive things on the fly and be able to work with mm-hmm. uh, uh, sort of a, a much more flexible uh, frame. I, I, I think her work is amazing. It's just, it's, I had never seen any before. It just struck me. But one of the things you do in this book all the way through is point out how photographers have been among us documenting important things like one company documents construction. Right. One company photographs things for city directories. Yes. You know, and there there are photographers who have jobs we might not have imagined, like Mother Marie St. Croix. Yes. Uh, the practice of photography, whether professional or or amateur is uh, the the subjects are so wide open. Um, uh, for example, in the construction field, the, um, a lot of those pictures are in the Charles Frank collection. And mm-hmm. Frank advertised himself as an industrial photography yeah. with a specialization in progress photos. And so anytime there was a big, uh, whether it was building wharves or the port of embarkation or, or a power plant, uh, a power plant um, uh, Frank was often hired to document these projects from the ground up, from when there was a hole in the ground till the topping off ceremony and the dedication of the building. And they're a good record of that in infrastructure. I, th- I think one of the things we have to realize is that professional photographers are paid to take pictures yeah. of certain things. They don't necessarily say, oh, I'm going to go out and document all of New Orleans. Oh, right. <laughs> um, some, again, uh, in air quotes, amateur photographers or, or people who are not doing it for professional recompense can undertake these more massive uh, mm-hmm. kind of documentation projects as a, as a matter of personal inclination. And you have so many wonderful uh, people of color in this collection, African-American photographers like Arthur Berdu. He's, Talk a little bit about him. He's so interesting to me. I became acquainted with Badu's name uh, probably in the second half of the 1970s, and um, I was um, compiling a list of photographers in New Orleans city directories, so it was dutifully going through the mm-hmm. commercial listings, transcribing activity dates, addresses, and his name kept coming up over a long period of time, and also... Um, as an insurance company employee and later executive. And he was just on my mind for a long time. And every time a little piece of information would come up. And I really have to um, thank uh, Gerard Mouton, who has a picture in the book, but also is this incredible uh, historian who has chronicled the lives and production of African-American photographers in New Orleans. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. as they say, Gerard has forgotten more than I'll know. But 
But there, there's a wonderful picture of Booker T. Washington, who was... Yes. He was Booker T. Washington's official photographer. He he followed Washington a lot. He was at Tuskegee and also traveled with him, uh, Badoo did. And the the picture to which you're referring is on Booker T. Washington's, I, I think the press characterized it as a farewell tour uh-huh. through Louisiana. It occurred during the last year of his life. And I don't know if that was known that uh, the end was near for him or whether it just happened that way. But um, yes, it's a still picture, but it's so full of energy. Washington is is, uh, kind of surrounded by a sea of people in a kind of open industrial area, it appears to me, perhaps a rail yard, perhaps a riverside setting. There are uh, what appear to be kind of uh, storage facilities in the far distance of the picture. And I, I've always wondered about the circumstances of the photograph because it appears that maybe it was a little impromptu. Uh, there's no real podium there, but um, right. there appears to be a, a desk or a table that has been turned on its side and is trying to contain the many pages of notes uh, that uh, Booker T. Washington uh, is using in the delivery of his address. And it's really a, a, a very energized picture of an important statesman. Now, one of the most beautiful things you've written in the introduction is, whatever else they may be, photographs are patient, which I loved. So Um, talk a little bit about that patience. Well, it's it's the idea that once a photograph is made as an object, it doesn't change. I I, I mean, it can degrade, it can be torn, it can, but assuming, assuming an ideal situation for its survival, once a picture is Uh, kind of committed to its final form, that's the form it's going to have forever. And the the idea that a picture we might look at from 150 years ago can mean something to us today, the picture hasn't changed. It may have changed us. Right. But, um, and and that's what I mean uh, by by their patient. They... um, And they uh, reveal themselves over time. You look at that photograph of the workers in the mill. Yes. And then they were all so proud and happy to be in that photograph. But now we turn a page and see children. Right. And are shocked. Yeah. Right. So, and uh, the the Lewis Hine picture in the Lane Cotton Mills, right, made at the, um, uh, I think that was 1913. Uh, but Hine was very much interested in the condition, working conditions of uh, children and young adults in uh, what could be considered dangerous jobs. And, yeah. Um, uh, although I think in reading his notes on that picture in the Library of Congress, he um, said that in terms of the Lane cotton mills, it was not nearly as bad as he had seen other mm-hmm. places. So, Well, you're not just a photographer. You're a poet of photography. Oh, I think you're wonderful. That <laughs> Thank was, you. introduction was wonderful. We've been talking with John Lawrence, whose Louisiana Lens, photographs from the historic New Orleans collection, makes its debut at the Louisiana Book Festival, Saturday, October 28th. John appears from 1245 to 130 with Jessica Dorman in the State Capitol, House Committee Room 5, followed by a book signing till 2.30 in the book tent. What fun. John, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. Thank you.
Here's what's on tap in the literary life this week. The big event this weekend is the Louisiana Book Festival, which takes place Saturday, October 28th from 9 to 4 in downtown Baton Rouge. Nearly 200 authors and presenters appear in more than 100 panels and programs. A highlight of the day is the presentation of the Louisiana Writer Award, given this year to Maurice Carlos Ruffin at the opening ceremony. Other authors appearing include Haley Arsenault, Tyler Bridges, Brian Costello, Ben Depp, Gordon Nick Mueller, Allison Pellegrin, Frank Perez, Mike Perlstein, Mickey Pfeffer, Ken Wells, Hillary Wells, Kim Wickens, and Peter Wolf. For more information about the festival, visit louisianabookfestival.org. Blue Cypress Books presents An Evening with Jenna Rose Nethercott, author of Thistlefoot and her traveling puppet theater, Friday, October 27th at 6 p.m. Adrienne Van Young, whose new story collection is Midnight Self, appears in conversation with Anya Groner, Saturday, October 28th at 5 at Blue Cypress Books. Marlene Tressman discusses her new book, Most Fortunate Unfortunates, The Jewish Children's Home of New Orleans, Sunday, October 29th at 4 with a conversation with Tulane history professor emeritus Larry Powell and Octavia Books. Ava Morgan, author of The Witches of Bone Hill, appears in conversation with Mary McMine, author of The Book of Gothel, Memoir of a Witch, Monday, October 30th at 6 at Blue Cypress Books. Author, TV producer, and award-winning filmmaker Natasha Lanz-Rogoff presents her recent book, Muppets in Moscow, the unexpected crazy true story of making Sesame Street in Russia, on account of bringing the Muppets to 1990s Russia just after the collapse of the Soviet Union. She appears in conversation with Samuel C. Raymer and Natasha Raymer Monday, October 30th at 7 at the Jewish Community Center Uptown. This ticketed event is presented by Octavia Books. Lucretia Ty Jasmine celebrates the release of her book, 70s Teen Pop, Wednesday, November 1st at 6 at Blue Cypress Books. Founding support for The Reading Life comes from Octavia Books, with major support from Rouse's Markets. Additional support comes from the Hellas Foundation, the Jefferson Parish Public Library, and the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in The Reading Life do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The theme song for The Reading Life is by Matt Perrine and Sunflower City. The Reading Life is produced by George Ingmeyer and is a production of WWNO. You can listen to us anytime or subscribe to our podcast at wwno.org. And you can email us at the reading life at wwno.org.